BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. On this episode of Newt's World, Rob Reiner first came to fame as a two-time Emmy Award-winning actor on the landmark television series All in the Family. He went on to become an acclaimed director of some of the most popular and influential motion pictures. His work ranges from satire, this is Spinal Tap, which is one of my favorites, to dramas like Stand By Me, Misery, A Few Good Men, and Ghost of Mississippi, to romantic comedies like When Harry Met Sally and The American President, to the enduring classic, The Princess Bride. His now 20 films also include The Bucket List, Flipped, LBJ starring Woody Harrelson, and most recently, Shock and Awe, which exposed the lies that led to the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Rob, along with his wife Michelle and Matthew George, continue to run Castle Rock Entertainment, a TV and film production company. He's joining me today to discuss his new 10-part podcast entitled Who Killed JFK? In commemoration of the 60th anniversary of President John F. Kennedy's tragic assassination, Reiner and journalist Soledad O'Brien interview CIA officials, medical experts, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists, eyewitnesses, and a former Secret Service agent who in 2023 came forward with groundbreaking new evidence. They also discuss their own theories of who killed JFK, how that question has shaped America, and why it matters that 60 years later, we're still asking the question. Rob, welcome and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Thanks for having me, Newt. This is great. And I have to say, when I learned that, I think it's correct, that when Harry met Sally... The woman in the background who says, I'll take whichever she has, is, I think, your mother? Yes, yes, my mother. And she took her place in the pantheon of most quoted lines in movies. It's an amazing scene. And anybody who hasn't seen it, now you've got to go see it to see what we're talking about. Let me start with, you grew up with one of the great comedians of all time, a man who in some ways invented much of television comedy, and that's Carl Reiner. 
He did 158 episodes of the Dick Van Dyke Show. So from your own background, I mean, were you just sort of automatically in the entertainment business? You know, it seems like I was because that was what I was surrounded by my whole life growing up. I mean, Mel Brooks was around and Norman Lear and all of these, you know, great comedians and comic writers. And I've often said that if you look at anything that you laughed at in the second half of the 20th century, it came from my father in the Sid Caesar show. You had Neil Simon and, like I say, Mel Brooks and Woody Allen and Larry Gelbart, all these great writers writing some of the funniest things you ever can imagine. And that's the atmosphere that I grew up in. And then when you're still pretty young, you go to the Bucks County Playhouse, which is a fairly famous local playhouse in New Hope, Pennsylvania. And again, you're working with people who become famous. Yeah, I was an apprentice. You know, I was building scenery, painting sets and things like that. I wasn't anybody in those days. But yeah, I mean, you know, Merv Griffin came and did a show and Alan Alda and Shelley Berman, all these people came through and it was a great exposure and a great way as my first job, I guess you would say. Didn't get paid for it, but it was my first job in show business. Well, and I didn't realize that your writing career starts with the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. And your writing partner is one of the great comedians of our time, Steve Martin. I mean, what was it like to interact regularly with Steve? Well, we were the two youngest. I was 21. Steve was 23. So I think they threw us together because we were the youngest ones. And we wrote a couple of great sketches. And it was fun because we were young. We didn't know. Tommy Smothers was always fighting with the censors. I mean, we were at a time when... There was a lot going on in the world. We had the Vietnam War. We had the civil rights movement heating up and the women's movement. And we wrote some very cutting edge things. And Tommy always had a fight with the censors. He was always fighting. And I didn't understand, why can't we just put this on? You know, why can't we just do this? Because you're a young kid. You don't know any different. But Tommy was, and he just passed away recently, too. And, you know, I miss him and Norman Lear, my dad. I was talking to my friend Albert Brooks and I said, all these people are dying around me. And he said, well, move. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and it's fascinating because you are part of a generation of comedians. Years ago, I read Steve Allen's book, The Funny Man. And there's this whole pattern of comedy and people learning from each other and sort of grows on itself and it evolves. It does. I mean, you take from each other. I mean, you know, you can't help but be influenced. I mean... I was very, very lucky in that I had two men in my life, my father, obviously, and Norman Lear, who were great role models. And I looked up to them. People always ask me, well, did they give you advice and so on? They don't sit you down and give you advice. The advice they give is you observe how they live. And that's the best advice you can get is they model how to be with other people, how to create, how to do what they do. And that's what I took from both of them. I learned from my dad how to handle being famous and, you know, dealing with the world. And I learned from Norman that you can take your fame, your celebrity and whatever, and you can create things and you can also use them for good. You know, if there's issues that you care about, you can promote them through your celebrity. And I've fortunately been able to do that as well. The great breakthrough in your career, which leads to everything else, is when you play Meathead on All in the Family, which was a huge hit. And you won two Primetime Emmy Awards. It's a great role. And of course, it's part of the reason 
that it's an honor for me to be interviewing you because you are so much a part of my life. How did you end up with that role? Well, you know, it's interesting because Norman Lear did two pilots with ABC and they didn't sell. And I auditioned for one of those pilots and I didn't get the part. But then I guess I matured a little bit. I got a little better as an actor and he saw me in some things that I did. And then I went and auditioned a second time. And this time I got the part. And oddly enough, I auditioned with my soon-to-be wife, Penny Marshall, who passed away a little while ago. And Penny didn't get the part. Sally Struthers did. And the rest, as they say, is history. Well, and you had Carol O'Connor and Gene Stapleton. I mean, the four of you made such a great troupe, if you will. The chemistry seemed amazing. Yeah, the chemistry was incredible. And, you know, when you're making a show like that, and we did eight seasons, we did over 200 episodes. And, you know, you spend more time with those people in your TV family than you do with your real family because you're there for, you know, 10, 12, sometimes 14 hours a day. And so it becomes a family. And we were a family. We loved each other and we supported each other. And it was an incredible experience. How much of the chemistry was Norman Lear? Oh, a lot. A lot. Recently, I was on the Emmy Awards show program and Sally Struthers and I introduced the clip package that was about in memoriam, the people who had passed away in the last year. And it started with Norman Lear. And one thing I said about Norman, aside from all the great things he did and the culture he changed by the work he did, was that I called him, it's a Yiddish phrase, I called him a kokleffel. It's a Yiddish phrase that means ladle. It's something that stirs the pot. And that's what Norman did. He stirred the pot. He always tried to get the best out of you. And he said, dig into yourselves, find out what you feel and what you believe, and we'll get that into the scripts. And so he did that. He was a tremendous catalyst for all the success of not just All in the Family, but the Jeffersons and Maud and Good Times and One Day at a Time, all the shows that he had. I think he had like eight primetime shows on at one time, which is astounding. No, it's remarkable. Now, you took all that experience and that knowledge, and you become a director, starting with a film I've always liked, which is the heavy metal mockumentary, This is Spinal Tap. First of all, what inspired you to become a director? And second, why that show as your launch point? Well, I always wanted to direct, even before I did All in the Family. When I was 19, I was at UCLA, and I formed an improvisational group. And it was called The Session, and I directed it and acted in it, and we got a theater on Sunset, and I did that for a while. I directed plays in Los Angeles. And so when I got all in the family, it basically was kind of interrupting in a weird way my directing career, which is what I always wanted to do. So that was something I wanted to do from the get-go. Now, Spinal Tap came to be because I was talking to Harry Shearer, who plays Derek Smalls in the film, and we had an idea to do a film called Roadie. And it was all about the road managers and the behind the scenes for rock and roll. Now, in 1978, Harry and myself and Chris Guest, who plays Nigel and 
Michael McKean, who plays David St. Hummins. We did a TV show called The TV Show, of all things, and it was a satire of various things on television, sitcoms and commercials and telethons, all kinds of stuff. And one of the things we did at Takeoff was Saturday night, it was called Midnight Special, and it was a rock and roll program that came on Saturday night, and I played Wolfman Jack, and we had this band called Spinal Tap, and it was the first time they ever appeared, and they did a song called Rock and Roll Nightmare, and during the time we were working on it, between takes, Harry and Michael and Chris started ad-libbing, you know, as these British rock and roll guys, and so down the road, we said, hey, you know, maybe we could do something with these guys. We'll do a movie about them, and so that eventually, down the road, became the basis for Spinal Tap. In a sense, because Spinal Tap is humor, and that kind of grows out of a lot of your background experience. But when I think about, for example, A Few Good Men, that is a long way from humor. That's very different. Yeah, there's some comedy in it, but basically it's a drama. I mean, it's a serious drama, and it's based on a true story, actually. Aaron Sorkin's sister was in the JAG Corps during this period, and there was a colonel who was on this military base in Guantanamo, and he did get court-martialed because he illegally ordered a code red done on a Marine that was under his auspices. And they had a trial and he eventually left the Marine Corps and, you know, was kind of uncomfortable. And that became the basis for the play, A Few Good Men, which Aaron wrote and was on Broadway. And then we adapted it for the screen. No, it's a very, very powerful movie. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Of all of your films, and you have such a broad range, is there any one you look back and you say, that's my favorite? Well, you know, Newt, it's like all your children. We love them all, <laughs> even the ones who are rotten <laughs> at times. But no, I think, I don't know if it's my best film, but the one that means the most to me is Stand By Me, because it was the first time in my life that I did a film that really reflected my personality. You know, my father started doing satire. And, you know, as you pointed out, Spinal Tap was a satire. Then I did a small film called The Sure Thing, which was a romantic comedy about young people. And my dad had done a number of romantic comedies. But Stand By Me was the first time I did something that had humor in it. It had nostalgia. It had melancholy. It had all these elements and it was more reflective of my personality. And so when it became successful, it validated the kinds of things I wanted to do. And I've tried to marry drama and humor in most of the things I do. You had an amazing run there because you do Stand By Me in 86. You come back with an iconic film, The Princess Bride in 87. And I would argue an equally iconic film, When Harry Met Sally in 89. I mean, you were on a real roll at that point. Yeah, yeah. And when Harry met Sally, there's a good story about this, which is not only did my mother say that line, I'll have what she's having, but I met my wife, who I will be married to for 35 years in May. I met her making that film and I changed the ending of the film because I met her while we were making the film. I had been single for 10 years after having been married for 10 years. I was I was now divorced and single. I was making a mess, a complete mess of my dating life. You know, I was with this one. I broke up. I couldn't make it work with this one. It was all that kind of stuff. And that became the basis for when Harry met Sally. So I didn't see how I was ever going to be with anybody. So that's the way it ended initially, that they didn't get together. 
And when I met Michelle, I said, oh, I see. <laughs> I could be with somebody. And then I went and changed the ending. Which changes the whole movie. It's a whole movie. And I think it would not have been successful, I don't think, if the two of them hadn't gotten together at the end. It's a remarkable film. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? We make getting custom window treatments a minor project with major impact. Choose from premium blinds, shades, and shutters. We even have options for your patio, too. Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Our design experts can help you find the perfect window treatments on your schedule. We'll even send free samples directly to you. Plus, we can handle the measuring and installation for you. Unlimited window treatments installed for just one low cost. And with Blinds.com, you'll always get transparent pricing. No hidden fees. Our free shipping and 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step. And into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com right now and save 40% site-wide. Get 40% off for a limited time at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. You've done all these amazing things as an actor, as a director, as a writer, and then you turn your attention to JFK, which, of course, for our generation, was one of the moments that shattered our lives and forced us to confront that there's evil in the world and that things can happen that you can't control. And it's remarkably successful. Who Killed JFK has five and a half million total downloads, spent weeks at number one on Apple's top podcast chart, has been the number one history podcast for over two months. I mean, you're obviously hit a home run here, but what led you into doing this? Because it's a big project. Newt, you'll appreciate it because if you were alive at that time, you knew exactly where you were when you heard that news. Nothing had ever happened like that 
in modern American history, a president being gunned down in broad daylight on an American street. It was just shocking. It was a national trauma. And I remember I was 16 at the time. I was in physics class in high school. And a kid came in and whispered in the teacher's ear. And the teacher turned to us and said, I have some terrible news. And he told us what had happened. And we were all sent home from school. And I sat there like everybody else and watched television and watched continuously to see what was going on. And I actually saw, like many, many people did, I watched the man who was accused of killing the president, Lee Harvey Oswald, shot and killed himself on live television and never seen anything like that before. So it was like shocking. Again, I was only 17. I didn't really understand what had happened. And it wasn't until after the Warren Commission report came out I read this book called Rush to Judgment by Mark Lane, and he questioned the Warren Commission report. He started talking about things that either didn't make sense or weren't accurate and all of this, and I started getting interested in it. Then I was about 19, I think, at the time, and I was playing at the Hungry Eye up in San Francisco with my friend Larry Bishop, and we opened for Carmen McRae, and in the smaller room, there was a little room, and there was comedian Mort Saul, who... For those of you who don't know who that is, he was a very famous political satirist. He used to do political satires. He was a comedian. But this time, he was not talking about it at all. All he talked about was the Warren Commission report and that there was something wrong with it and it didn't make sense and all this stuff. And that got me even more interested. So from that point on, for almost 60 years, any time a new thing would come out, it was a book or a new bit of evidence, or something would emerge, I was fascinated by it. And the reason I did the podcast is because if you're not following this closely, you know, something emerges and you go, well, that's interesting, but what does that have to do with everything else? How do you put this together? And based on everything I had read, all the forensics experts I had talked to, visiting Dealey Plaza many times, going to the school book depository, going up to the sixth floor, studying that, I started piecing it together. I went to where Oswald boarding house, where he stayed, and I started piecing it all together with all the information. I said, I'd like to put together what I think happened and what I believe happened on that fateful day. And for people who have not been following it intimately, put the pieces together so that people who don't know much about it will get a sense of it. And people who have been researching it and studying it for years will maybe learn a little bit more and put it all together. So that's what led me to do it. And, you know, in the last six, seven years, I ran into a great researcher named Dick Russell, who wrote a book called The Man Who Knew Too Much, was all about a guy named Richard Case Nagel, who was a CIA asset who worked for the military. He was a military intelligence guy. And he knew Lee Harvey Oswald. And I started learning about people who knew Lee Harvey Oswald. I learned about the files that the CIA kept on Lee Harvey Oswald. They have thousands and thousands of pages of files, which have been released over the years. But in the Warren Commission report, there's no mention. There's like saying we don't really know Lee Harvey Oswald. We don't know much about him. He was a lone assassin. And then you find out there's thousands of pages of tracking Lee Harvey Oswald for years, for four years, 
prior to the assassination. So you start putting all these pieces together and you learn. You learn what this one did and what that one did. And we have eyewitnesses, people who were there that day who will say very specific things. Listen to the podcast. You're going to get it all. You're going to hear what happened. And we don't put anything out there that we can't substantiate. I mean, we name the four shooters. Now, exactly where they were positioned, we don't know. But we do know, and this is based on hard evidence, we know that there were four assassins present in Dallas that day. And here's something interesting. And I didn't talk about this on the podcast, but um, and I don't think John Brennan will mind me saying this. It's not classified in any way. But I've become friends with John Brennan over the years. And I was having dinner with him one night. And I was dying to ask him what he knew. You know, I'm so steeped in it. But I didn't. I didn't ask him because, you know, I just felt awkward. And then, you know, at the end of the meal, he said to me, so what are you working on these days? You know, just a casual kind of thing. And I said, well, you know, I'm working on this idea about the Kennedy assassination. And he says, what do you think about that? And I started to tell him the things that I thought. And at one point I said to him, what do you know about a man named Richard Case Nagel? And he said to me, well, what do you know about Richard Case Nagel? Like that. And I tell him what I know, you know, but the things I knew, which are all documented. I mean, there are newspaper reports for all this. And then at one point, his wife, Kathy, says, John, do you think there's any reason why Rob should not pursue this? And all he said at the time was, no, I think it's always a good idea to revisit history. That's all he said. And then two weeks later, I got an email from him saying that there was a man that he worked with in the CIA. And by the way, this guy, his name is Rolf Moet Larson. He's in the podcast. We interview him for the podcast. This is a man that John worked with for 20 years. He had been a Moscow bureau chief for a while. And he said he has some similar thoughts to what you are presenting. Would you like to meet him? So I went to D.C. with my wife, Michelle, and we met, sat down, had dinner with him. And he did lay out a similar idea to what we had. Oddly enough, he named one of the people that he believed was one of the shooters, and it was one of the shooters that we had already identified, a fellow named Jack Cannon, who we talk about in the podcast. But essentially what he said, it had, in his mind, it had all the earmarks and the markings of a rogue CIA operation and how it was done. And so, you know, it kind of corroborated the way in which I thought about it. But you have to understand, this is not a from the top bottom kind of thing. There's no paper trail for this. You're not going to say somebody's going to write down, well, we're going to kill the president today. Here's your job. Here's your job. You know, it doesn't work that way. It's done in very clandestine ways. And we get into how this could happen and the allies that they had. And we try to approach it like a crime. And we call it the greatest murder mystery in American history. And we approach it the way you would an investigation, which is who are the suspects, who had motive, what are the forensics, and then you start to put it together. And it's obviously it's a circumstantial case. But if you put the pieces together, you start to form a picture that's fairly clear. Well, it seems to me because you were so exhaustive about this, and like you, that was one of the defining moments of my life. I have a similar passion about what exactly happened, and I'm pretty convinced that the Warren Commission was a cover-up. You make the case 
that Texas Governor John Connolly said for his whole life that he was not hit by the same bullet. No, no, he's always said that till the day he died. And we know that that's true because the Warren Commission had a real problem. They had a real problem, which is they said there were only three shots that came from the sixth floor of the book depository. Now, the problem they had was that the first shot missed and it hit a curb and a little piece of concrete was flicked up, hit a bystander named James Tague in the cheek and his cheek started to bleed all of a sudden. So now they're down to two shots. They have only got two shots. We know a shot hit President Kennedy in the head. You can see it on the Zapruder film. So that's one shot. So that leaves one bullet left. And that one bullet has to do a lot of stuff. First of all, the autopsy diagram showed that the bullet entered Kennedy's back about six to eight inches below his neck. The one they're talking about, which they call the single bullet theory, by the way, was developed by Arlen Specter, who was a counsel to the Warren Commission at the time. The bullet goes into Kennedy's back six to eight inches below his neck, then travels up and comes out his throat, then makes a turn. This would have had to have happened. Hits Connolly in the armpit, in the ribs, and then makes another turn, breaking some of his wrist bones, then makes another turn and goes into his thigh. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. It makes no sense. And by the way, the bullet that they said did that winds up as evidence number 399. You can see it. It's in the archives. It's also in the Warren Commission report. It's virtually a pristine bullet. It has a little striations on the tip of it. But other than that, it is pristine. And they say it wound up on the stretcher of Connolly. And so this came out during the podcast. While we're doing the podcast, it came out, this guy, Paul Landis, who was a Secret Service agent, who was in the trail car behind Kennedy's car, who was on the running board and witnessed the whole thing. He said, the bullet that hit Kennedy in the head, he said, brain matter and skull matter was flying at him, flying in his direction. And he had a duck to miss all this stuff that was coming at him. Then when they arrived at Parkland Hospital, he was in charge of helping Mrs. Kennedy up. He helped her up. They got the president out, getting him into the hospital. When he helped her up, he noticed there was a pool of blood in the back seat of the limo. And then resting on the head part of the seat was this bullet, this bullet that became the one that was in the archives. And he didn't testify at all. And the Warren Commission, by the way, never asked for not only his testimony, but no Secret Service testimony was in the Warren Commission. So years later, he saw this bullet and he said, hey, that's my bullet. That's the bullet. He picked it up because he thought this is an important piece of evidence. I don't want it. Somebody grab it, you know, for a souvenir. He put it in his pocket and he went into the emergency room and he took the bullet and he put it by Kennedy's body, thinking that, you know, they'd find it or whatever. But the point is, that's not a bullet that went through Connolly, because it's there in the backseat of the car. So the whole thing, it just corroborates the whole idea of the crazy single bullet theory. But they had to have that theory. Otherwise, they couldn't pin it all on Oswald. Now, we're not saying there wasn't a shooter up on the sixth floor. There was. There was. And there were witnesses who saw a shooter on the sixth floor. But 
that's not the whole story. There were other shooters in other positions based on the forensics. We can pretty well place where those shooters were. And you think there were four of them? Well, I think there are either four or five. We didn't say five only because we couldn't identify five assassins in Dallas that day. Most people think there were four to five. There are some people that think only two. But if you look at the forensics and you study it, it couldn't have been done in two positions. We say, yes, the school book depository, sixth floor, what has become to be known as the grassy knoll, where some shots came from. There's a building behind Houston Street called the Daltex building, which easily could have accounted for some of the wounds from there. And then there's the South Knoll, the area on the overpass in the South Knoll. And we have witnesses who said shots came from there. This guy named Tosh Plumley, who's in the documentary, who was a CIA asset, whose job that day was to fly Johnny Roselli and E. Howard Hunt to Dallas that day. We talked to E. Howard Hunt's son, St. John Hunt, and asked him, you know, because his father told him that he was in Dallas that day. And we asked St. John, well, what was your father doing? He was a CIA at the time. People know E. Howard Hunt from the Watergate plumbers and the burglars of Watergate, but he was in the CIA at the time. And I asked St. John, I said, what was your father doing there that day? And he told me he was a bench warmer. And I said, well, what's a bench warmer? And he said, if anything went wrong, he knew every single safe house in that area. He could get people out of there safely away from it. That's what his role was. But anyway, Tosh Plumley flew them in and he was on the South Knoll opposite the Grassy Knoll. And he said, yeah, a shot came from there. He said he knows a shot came from there. And when you look at all the forensics and you talk to forensics experts, they'll tell you that one of the headshots came from that area. And then a lot of people believe there was also a shot from the county records building, which was also across the street, across Houston Street. And that also makes sense, too. But we couldn't identify five shooters, but we certainly know that the four that we identified were in Dallas that day. And they were mob-connected. And they were connected also to the Cuban exile community. So two examples of things that were sort of slowed down or covered up. The Zapruder film is not made public until 12 years after the assassination. Why was it kept hidden? Well, for obvious reasons, you can see shots coming from the front and which would completely debunk the Warren Commission. But it was bought, actually, by Time magazine. They bought the rights to the Zapruder film, and over the years, they just released a couple of still photographs, but nothing showing the film. It was not, like you say, until over a decade later that the guy, a guy named Robert Groden, was on the Geraldo Rivera show with the comedian Dick Gregory, and Groden worked in a film lab where the film was sent to him. They were asking if it could be blown up from its original 8 millimeter to 35 millimeter and to see if it would hold resolution. Well, he did something he shouldn't have done, which is he sent the original back plus the new blown up film, but he kept a copy for himself. And he looked at it and he said, oh my God, there's a shot coming from the front. That's ridiculous. And he went on the Geraldo show and for the first time they put it out there. And we have that tape on the podcast as well. So the public didn't know about that. And like I say, if you look at the evidence that dropped over 60 years, sometimes they're 20 and 30 years apart. 
So if you listen to the Warren Commission, it came out in 64. And over a decade later, you're saying, oh, that's the thing. You don't put it all together. It's hard to piece it all together. You're just thinking, oh, okay, well, there's a shot that hit Kennedy. People aren't sophisticated to say, oh, I'm going to study the forensics on this and figure it out. It was up to researchers to do all that. Six decades later, there are still 4,600 documents classified. Right. Why? Well, that's a great question. Nobody knows why. I mean, what we've seen released up till now, and it's been drips and drabs. I mean, there was whatever you want to say about Oliver Stone's film. They threw out a whole lot of ideas. They didn't really connect the dots. They didn't really posit a specific plan. But what it did was it got people interested in the Kennedy assassination again. And as a result, the JFK Records Act was passed which said that they had to release to the public everything that was held back over a period of many years. And the final date came up a few times under Obama, under Donald Trump, and also under Biden, and they kept withholding. And so we don't know why they're withholding it or what's being withheld, but Jefferson Morley, who does a website called JFK Facts, he was saying that In the last number of years, we've got all this information about the connection between Oswald and the CIA. It's there. It's right there. You can read it. You can read about it. He said there's probably more information connecting the two. He said, but the problem is, by the time these things come out, people who were involved, names that they can figure out, they're dead already. You know, you can't talk to them. So I have no idea what's in there. My guess is that it's probably more CIA connections to Oswald or to other entities. One of the big revelations and the single, to me, the one biggest, most shocking revelation that came out was, as you said, you felt that the Warren Commission report, there was a cover up. And we believe that as well, because there's a reason why Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA during Kennedy's time, who was fired by Kennedy after the Bay of Pigs, and was put as being a liaison between the Warren Commission and the CIA. And no information about the CIA came into that report. He was a gatekeeper. This is the big revelation. Only in studying it do you find out. And we name it. There's a fellow named George Joannides. Nobody knows that name. It doesn't mean anything to anybody. But George Joannides was the liaison to the House Select Committee on Assassinations which was put together in the 70s. When the Zapruder film came out, there was a lot more interest, and they decided to re-examine that in the 70s. George Joannides was the guy who was in charge of being the liaison to the CIA. He was an ex-CIA agent. What they didn't know, we interviewed Robert Blakey, who was the lead counsel for the House Select Committee, is that George Joannides headed up a program based in Miami that was a counterintelligence program that developed the assets like Lee Harvey Oswald, including Lee Harvey Oswald. So he was furious when he heard that. He said, if I knew then what I know now, I would have put that guy on the stand. He was the answer to all the questions we had as to whether or not there was any connection between Oswald and the CIA. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I know, right? I was worried we'd bring back the same team. Oh, no, I meant those blackout motorized shades. MVP of the room. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. Even you could do it. Nice. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. What, you fly across the country to do the install? Nope. Blinds.com can do it all. All she had to do was pick what she wanted. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Look at you, Hall of Fame son. Oh, I just picked the winning team. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Oh, Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. He shoots. He scores. Go to Blinds.com for 40% off site-wide and a 100% satisfaction guarantee. Go right now for 40% off site-wide at Blinds.com. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infinity QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. As you render judgment here, because you know vastly more than almost anybody about this, what's Oswald's role? Is he a dupe? Was he the setup? He said, I was just a patsy. That He said that a number of times during his incarceration in the Dallas police station. They had a program that started when Oswald was 17. He got into the Marines. He was stationed in North Carolina for a while at a place called Nags Head. Tosh Plumley, who was the guy who flew Roselli and Hunt to Dallas that day, he knew Oswald there. He was part of the same program. They were developing wayward youth. They didn't know what they were going to do with them. Maybe it'll be an asset somewhere down the road. They don't know. They're just developing people. Then he goes to Atsugi base in Japan. He's learning radar skills for the U-2 spy planes. He's learned Russian in the meantime, goes back to America, and then eventually goes to Russia as a defector. And that was the beginnings of what they call sheep dipping somebody down the road as an asset. James Angleton, who was the head of counterintelligence for the CIA at the time, was very concerned about moles infiltrating the CIA. This was the height of the Cold War. People were 
scared. The phrase better dead than red was running around. People were scared about creeping communism and that they were going to take over. Khrushchev very famously came to the UN, banged his shoe on a table and said, we will bury you. And that that was the big thing up until Reagan. And when he said, tear down this wall, we had a serious Cold War going on between Russia and the United States. Angleton wanted to get some moles inside the KGB. And that's a program he had. And Oswald was part of that. I mean, it didn't work out so good. They didn't find anything. But he came back to America. He was not debriefed. He was given a job right away. He was connected to assets of the CIA to help him reacclimate into America. And so he was being developed. And like I say, at one point, they're going to call him in or not, you know, depending on what they decided to do. So, yeah, he was definitely a patsy. So in that narrative, I mean, is Jack Ruby an asset? Here's where Jack Ruby plays the role. And by the way, that's the nexus point of this whole thing. Jack Ruby, this two-bit nightclub owner that owns a place called the Carousel Club in Dallas, walks into the police station and kills Lee Harvey Oswald. Why? It makes no sense. The reason he gave at the time was he wanted to spare Jackie Kennedy a trial. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous on its face. When we drill down into it, and I interviewed a guy named John Currington, he's in the podcast, he worked for H.L. Hunt, the big oil man in Dallas. And when Oswald was arrested and taken to the Dallas police station, Currington was like a right-hand man to Hunt for 10, 15 years. Hunt calls him up and says, go to the Dallas police station and find out what kind of security they have. So he goes down there. He comes back and reports to Hunt. He says, there's no security. I walked in. I had a briefcase. They never checked that. I walked around. He said, okay, get me Joe Savello. I want a meeting with Joe Savello. Joe Savello was the head of the mob in the Dallas area. And it was Joe Savello that then arranged for Ruby to go in there. And what's interesting thing about Ruby is when he arrived at the Dallas police station to kill Oswald, that wasn't the first time he was there. He was there two times prior to that. One time we have him on tape actually standing there in a press gaggle when they're asking the DA and Oswald's right there. Somebody asked him, was Oswald part of the Free Cuba Committee or something like that? And there's Ruby right there in the press gaggle. He says, no, no, it was the fair play for Cuba Committee. He actually corrects the D. I mean, it's crazy. It's crazy. By the way, all the cops used to go to his club. They knew him. And Oswald knew Ruby. I mean, we have hard evidence of Oswald and Ruby spending time together. And that's another thing, though. Warren Commission said Oswald you know, and Ruby never knew each other. It's not true. It's just not true. I have to say, given all the research you've done and the remarkable penetration that your podcast is developing, at a minimum, we ought to be able to get the 4,600 documents released. You would think. If you were in Congress right now, you'd get that done. Although I don't know that you want to be in Congress these days. <laughs> yeah, look, I'm going to talk to some friends of mine because I think you've done an extraordinary level of research. No, oh, thanks. Yeah, no, I've been thinking about this. Like I say, whenever anything new comes out, and I'm sure some new stuff will come out if we can get those. I think it's 4,800, but whatever it is, 46, 4,800, we'll get those. Then there'll be new stuff to pour over. I was a graduate student at Tulane. When the New Orleans district attorney decided he would solve it. Yeah. Oh, that was a mess. That thing was a mess. So I've been in and out of this stuff 
for my whole career. I think that what you've done is astonishing. And I think who killed JFK is something that is going to have a genuine long-term impact. You know, and it also explains the faith we had in the system through World War II is shattered in 1963. And I think the Warren Commission is a further part of shattering it. And we've never recovered. 100%. After the Second World War, we were the good guys. We beat the Nazis. We were the victors. And then this happened, and it was the beginning. And then we get into the Vietnam War, and the trust in government starts to erode. And we're seeing it now where trust in government is at its lowest, I think, in my lifetime, certainly. And I think insisting on getting to the truth and insisting on getting to the facts is part of how you rebuild that. And I think what you've done here is genuinely an important civic event. I'm very curious, Rob, given that this has been an amazingly successful five and a half million downloads already and more coming, have you considered turning it into a documentary? Yes. As a matter of fact, I'm going to start presenting this idea in the next week or so to some of the streamers. Not only that, but we're in talks of expanding this as a book, and we're going to go out to publishers. So yes. I could imagine this as a six or 10-part series on Netflix or somewhere that would get huge viewership. I hope so. I hope they think the same as you. First of all, as I said to you at the very beginning, just to be with you and the scale of your talent and the impact you've had on all of us. I mean, you have been in our lives for most of my lifetime, literally. I could have talked to you for hours and hours, but I want to encourage all of our listeners to listen to Who Killed JFK, which is part of iHeart Podcast. You can get it on the iHeart app, Pample Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rob, I want to thank you. This has been one of the most exciting interviews I've done on my podcast. Oh, thanks, Newt. I appreciate it. I had a great time. It was great to talk to you. Thank you to my guest, Rob Reiner. You can get a link to listen to the Who Killed JFK podcast on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com slash newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. 
Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. <laughs> I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com.